Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. Joining me is someone who's become, George, don't you feel like you've become famous because you're one of the the Silicon Valley companies that SPAC, that went public through a SPAC? Yeah, I mean, I when I did a SPAC, literally no one in Silicon Valley knew about SPACs. I, when I told my board in uh, early May, we're like, oh, maybe we should do a SPAC. Everyone's like, you're crazy. Uh, and now like, you know, half of Silicon Valley is talking or doing SPACs in some way. So it's been an interesting and fun a few months from that perspective. George, whose voice you just heard is George Arison. He is the co-founder of Shift. They make it easy for people to buy and sell used cars. How do you, that's the way you'd sum it up, right? Correct. All right. I want to find out how he built up his company. I want to find out a little bit about the SPAC, why he went SPAC. And then also, did he miss out on all the fun trips of getting to be on a private jet, talking to investors? <laughs> because he didn't do an IPO. Uh, we'll find out that and so much more thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. Uh, the first will host your website, right? If you're not hosting a site, go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy right now. And the second, George was one of the early users of them. It's Gusto. If you want to pay your people and have them be happy with the whole experience and have you and your team be happy, go to gusto.com slash Mixergy. George, how would you describe what a SPAC is? Um, SPACs are special purpose acquisition companies. These are companies formed by a small group of either financiers or entrepreneurs or both. Um, they go file an S1, go through an SEC process, then go public by raising capital. That capital is put into a trust and can only be used to merge with another company. Um, they use their own capital called at-risk capital to fund operations while they're looking for a company to merge with. Normally, the SPAC has a life of about 18 to 24 months, and in that time period, it has to find a company to merge with. It will then find a private operating company that has a real business to merge with. The, that company's uh, management will take over running of the, over, of the combined company, um, but through that merger, become a public company. Um, so it's a way for companies to go public outside of a typical kind of regular way IPO process. Are you someone who as a kid wanted to be, wanted to go public, be the founder of a publicly traded company? Uh, not as a kid. I mean, I grew up in the former Soviet Union and I didn't even know what a publicly traded company was, right? Until I got to the United States. Um, I, I actually thought I was going to be in politics uh, as an adult. Uh, you know, that was kind of my career aspiration. Uh, business was a means to an end uh, in that I wanted to you know, have a career before going to politics. And that's probably in some ways still could be true. But um, you know, I, I thought I would be an entrepreneur of some kind, but didn't think I was going to be a tech one and definitely didn't think I would be running a public company. Now, over time, that did become something really interesting to me. And, and I'm excited about uh, where we are now from that perspective, because it is a kind of great way to measure, hey, I've done something really awesome with the business I started, um, but definitely wasn't like, hey, I'm going to be a public company CEO as, as my dream thing when I was a young person. Is there anything that you missed out on? I guess you get because of that, because you didn't go through an IPO and instead you spacked. The only thing that I can think of is the fun part of being of explaining your story, being wine and dine, being on a jet and trying to persuade people to buy into your IPO. What else? Yeah, if you are um, you know, a super massive company and can afford a jet, sure, like that's great. And that said, in 2020, virtually nobody uh, that went public uh, did that because all the IPOs were done virtually, right. like ours was as well. Um, I took, I, you know, we did meetings from 5 a.m. until 5 p.m. Uh, every day for a, a while. Um, in some ways, actually, it actually makes it way more efficient. Um, so the way to think of SPACs is they allow you to time the market a lot better. Mm. And 
you, you are able to move on becoming public, even if you haven't yet done all the SEC work to get ready to be public, right? Because usually you do a lot of SEC work, you file an S1, you get it approved, all that stuff. And then you say, hey, I'm not going to go public. Uh, SPACs allow you to kind of move all that to post announcing a deal rather than prior. Uh, and so timing kind of works better from that perspective. But all the work that you do is exactly the same. As far as the roadshows, you still do a fairly intensive roadshow with investors, but it's spread out over a longer period of time. So you do uh, first what's called a pipe. That's a private investment in a public company. When you do a fundraise, once the merger is already announced, already planned um, to raise additional capital into the deal. Uh, and almost every SPAC merger that happens has a pipe component to it, and it's uh, the right thing to do. Uh, so you, that usually takes like one to three weeks, and so it's like, like a condensed kind of IPO period. You meet with very similar investors to whom you would meet with in the IPO. Uh, and then once the deal is already publicly announced and you've filed your SEC paperwork, then you do another two to three weeks of roadshow time where you go back and meet with investors. Um, again, very similar to an IPO process. Because they're so, going to be buying the pipe, which is the they're going to be buying the shares of the publicly traded company at their own so, special price. Yeah. So the first time around when it's the pipe transaction, they're buying shares in the pipe. Okay. Uh, and that's done at 10 bucks a share, which is how SPAC shares are issued. It's always at 10 bucks a share in the okay. initial price at 10 bucks a share. The, that's the first roadshow. The second roadshow you do is not, not for the pipe because at that point the pipe's already been raised. It's more to have people get excited about your business so they can go and buy publicly traded shares in the SPAC from people who hold them you know, from the beginning. So normally when SPACs raise money, they raise money from kind of specialty uh, hedge funds that specialize in these types of transactions. They're not investors that would want to hold a com uh, shares of an operating company long-term, right? They're not in that business. So what you want to do is you want to get enough investor interest from long-hold investors to actually go out and buy shares of the SPAC uh, and then keep your shares for the long time, right? So it's the idea of like going from <clears throat> having a hedge fund who is, you know, in a special situation trading SPAC shares to getting someone like Tiro Price uh, or, you know, Fidelity or other kind of long hold investors to be your shareholders for the long term. Okay, let's talk about the business itself. I didn't know this until I started researching you. The used car business is bigger than the new car business in the US. Am I right? It's much bigger than the new car business. The used so, car business annually is $841 billion. The new car is 636. Well, so that's the dollar amounts, but <clears throat> the actual units is even more mm -hmm. stark. Um, there's 45 million used car units transacted a year. And, you know, at peak, the best year was about 18 and a half million um, new car units. Uh, steady state, it's more like 16, you know, 16, 17 million new car units. So it's almost, you know, two and a half to three times bigger in terms of units versus new. Okay. And then, so <clears throat> groceries, smaller market. Yep. Right. Uh, home improvement, purse, uh, clothing, smaller. Yes. All of these are considerably large online. Even groceries, right, are done more yep. online than uh, than cars. I think I read that one percent of of used cars are bought online. Here, here it is. Versus nine percent for groceries, twenty eight percent for for furniture, thirty two percent of clothing. One out of three. Yeah. online. So it's the vertical of the American retail economy that has not shifted online yet. It's the one that's like most kind of in the offline model. Mm -hmm. Some of this is regulatory, like. For new, new car sales, dealers have, you know, an infrastructure that they kind of control vis-a-vis um, -vis OEMs. And, and that's one reason. I mean, everyone probably has heard or at least 
read about um, the Tesla kind of fights over, hey, is Tesla allowed to sell cars in the state or not? Um, that's on the new car side, but that actually helps kind of keep everything else uh, offline as well. Why? Um, Wait, so what you're talking about is Tesla can't own their dealerships in some states. They, they have to sell their cars to a dealer that they have a relationship with and only the dealer can sell it. It's, it's like a drug deal, right? It's, it's, so each state has dealer laws and part of the dealer laws that if, if you're an OEM, and you have dealerships that are franchisees, mm -hmm. you cannot have your own dealerships as well. Tesla actually only has its own dealerships, but in certain states, it's not even allowed to have a dealership. It can have a showroom, but it cannot sell a car. And so if you are in one of those states, you go to a showroom to see the car, and then you have to like go somewhere else, like a computer, and yeah. order your car purchase from, from the website. Um, so, but that, that, how does that impact you with the used with used car sales? Well, it's just that um, you know that it's used car sales can move online more easily because there's not the same kind of legal yep. issue. But since dealers sell cars both used and new, because dealers themselves are not moving online very quickly, um, that prevents new used, new cars from used cars from moving online quickly as well. Um, secondly, um, you know it's a very um, large market and it's very expensive to build out. So like the operational complexity mm. you have to build to be successful is, is, is very significant. And so the dollar investments necessary to kind of get to success is high. Um, it's not, you know, and margins are low, right? Like software businesses that kind of come from nowhere and become very big usually have very, very high margins. Um, the automotive industry does not have very high margins just because you know, that's the nature of the industry. Uh, and then thirdly, um, you know, the three companies that are kind of out there now doing online car sales, us, Carvana and Room, we're all very new, right? We've, we've all been formed in the last kind of seven, eight, nine years. And so we've not been around for very long. Um, and, you know, the grocery business, which is kind of the other worst one in the, in the space, has had a lot of the traditional players wanting to move online more um, than the automotive one. Now, this is all pre-2020 data. So I think what you're going to see in 2020 is groceries probably will be online way more than 9%. I would yep. easily guess like at least 20%. And automotive would have moved a lot more online as well. Not, you know, anywhere near 10%, probably like two or three maybe at most. But you definitely saw a massive shift uh, in dealer behavior and in um, consumer behavior uh, with the pandemic, uh, where now people who previously would totally dismiss the idea of online car shopping are a lot more serious about the possibility that that's might be the way people buy cars uh, in the future, uh, which is great, right? Because uh, we've been saying it's gonna happen. I think everyone assumes it's gonna take like 10 years for it to happen. And then suddenly it's all happening within you know, a couple of years. All right, so that's the opportunity you found. This is the business that you're in. Your revenue, I think, uh, quarter four 2020 was in the 70s, right? Yeah, I can't comment can't on that. You can't yeah, say that. I can't comment on the Q4 2020 revenue, but what I can say is that you know our um, uh, our guidance for the year uh, is in the kind of 190 to 195 range. Great. What I'm curious about is, which is phenomenal. What I'm curious about is this whole thing started because you and your co-founder, Toby, were sitting around or calling each other, trying to come up with a business idea. What are some of the ideas that you said, nah, this is not for us? We had so many, and some of them actually we're still excited about as ideas. It's just that the businesses themselves didn't necessarily make sense. I mean, um, for example, one of yeah. the ideas Toby really loved and still loves is helping college students figure out what they should do with their careers, right? Like, um, I think oftentimes people think they're good for one thing, but actually yep. their you know, skill set is better for something else. Okay. Can you build software and machine learning to help people 
um, come up with what they should actually do in that. Ah, keep asking so people questions, keep generating suggestions. Yep. And then as you learn, when you hit and fail, what's working, what's not, you keep Correct. improving. Got it. Okay. So that's yeah. one. I, where's the revenue coming from that? When you uh, about it? I think if you could, well, look, if you could figure out that this type of person is a really good software engineer for Facebook, right? And then if mm. you could go to colleges and, and find those potential Facebook engineers, you could charge Facebook a ton of money to send those people to them, right? So there Got is it. a there is a revenue model that you could uh, a utilize. There's making there for jobs. Yeah, yep. but, but, but it's just, a, you know, that was on one idea. And like, look, I think the idea of being in the business of like helping people get jobs is actually super exciting. But it seemed like a business that would be, you know, pretty complicated to build and maybe something we do, you know, when we are 50, not when we are in our in our. Uh, What's another one that that was like a good business that you might have gotten into? Um, we we fought a lot about um, financial uh, kind of technology businesses as well. Uh, to Toby was at a, at a bank at that point, and um, that was kind of a lot of different ideas kind of came out of there. Where like there's a lot of different opportunities in fintech that are happening, whether it's you know millennial focused credit cards or millennial focus, you know, checking and banking accounts, obviously Chime's done some of that and, and others have as well, but that's something we thought about quite a bit um, about also. Um, and, and, you know, look, there are many businesses and some of them I won't even mention because I still am thinking about them as like uh, things that should be done in the future. And I want to uh, keep keep that IP for myself. Okay. Uh, but uh, the at the same time, ideas are like, you know, plentiful executions, what's really hard, right? The what's What's really complicated as a uh, as an entrepreneur's execution, uh, not coming up with a good idea. Um, and frankly, like, uh, you know, I always believed that, let's say, but after my seven years of doing shift, I believe that even more because um, all the challenges we've ever had have been around execution, not around, hey, do we have the right strategy and the right ideas? I talked to uh, one of your co-founders, Minnie Ingersoll was one of the early co-founders, right? Yep. Yes. She told me about how she wanted to sell a car as a woman. It's like, where are you going to, to uh, test drive a car? Who's coming into your car? She was trying to sell her car, right? Yeah, she, she had a BMW she was trying to sell. And, uh, you know, they, um, uh, she, she's like, I'm not going to trade it in. It's kind of stupid to do that. So I'm going to do it myself. And then, you know, the kind of, she lived through the experience that we we're basically trying to solve, right? Because like people would show up at her house and be like, oh, can I take it on a test drive? And then like, uh, she's like, well, do I get in the car with them and then they can kidnap right. me? Or do I let them take the car and they might kidnap the car? Or like, you know, a guy came up and was like, okay, this car's great. I want to buy it. But do you have financing available? And then he's like, uh, no, I'm not a bank. Like, I don't well, because have they're trying to make a deal. <laughs> well, they're trying to like get a loan, right? Because yeah. one of the big problems we identified early on uh, to, to be trying to solve is the fact that in a, about a third of the cars sold used in the US are sold peer to peer. It's like you selling a car to me, but it's impossible to obtain financing for those transactions. So it's super easy to get a financing offer from a bank if you're buying a car from a dealership. But if you're buying a car private party, it's next to impossible to get financing. Why? So, um, it has to do with the fact that banks have basically outsourced to dealers um, two core things, checking the identity of the consumer, like ensuring that the consumer actually is who they claim they are. Uh, and uh, number two is checking the identity and the quality of the car to make sure that it's a clean title car with in, the, in good shape. And if dealers don't do those things and screw up and end up issuing a loan that's kind of bad, they're on the hook for that, not the bank. That allows the banks to have extremely low interest rates. On, That's something on I had loans. no idea. The dealer pays if I don't pay? 
if you if the dealer did not check things properly, okay. then the dealer's on the hook. So if you don't pay, that's different. Got like it. if you purely like, hey, you've been paying for five months and then you said not to pay, the bank can repossess the car and that's on you. But if like, you know, dealers are required to go through a certain set of steps to make sure that it's you, like check your ID, you know, pull your credit, check your pay stubs if your credit is not as good as it needs to be, et cetera, et cetera. If they fail to do one of those things and they're on the hook and the bank discovers that they failed to do one of those things, then they're on the hook for that, not, not the bank. What about it, this? The, what, what about this? You mentioned low interest rate. You, yeah. One of the things that I discovered was I bought a used car. I didn't even want a loan, but the interest rate was zero. So I thought, all right, I'll be an idiot not to. Mm-hmm. How did yeah, that interest, happen? So interest rates on, on car purchases are generally very low. Now, not for everybody, right? Obviously, like credit score matters as well. But it's, um, they're low because banks, um, it's viewed as extremely secure debt uh, because they can repossess the vehicle and, and resell it. It's a very liquid market. Uh, and banks have very low cost of capital, right? Because they basically pay you nothing for the money that you uh, put into your checking and savings account. Now, for dealerships, they also have partners that are the finance arms of OEMs, right? Mm-hmm. So like GM Financial, BMW Financial, et cetera. And those guys will oftentimes make offers for car purchases in terms of loans that are at zero interest rate. And the goal there is to move inventory, right? So for new cars or certified pre-owned vehicles um, that have the dealer, sorry, the, that have the OEM brand on them, um, the, oftentimes there is a kind of like virtually no interest rate. Uh, offer because they need to move inventory and they'll make money on the car. They won't make money on the loan. Got it. So what you're noticing is number one, huge market. Number two, not going online. Number three, it's kind of shady for people to sell it the way they're already selling it. The other uh, thing that I saw was I saw a stat about how much people hate used car dealers. So you either have a bad experience buying from a human being where you can't get a loan or you have a bad experience. that's even worse from a car dealer. And you said, this is our market. We've got to go in. And the first step you took was, was it a spreadsheet, a website, Craigslist? Yeah. You- so initially the idea actually was to build a financing business for private party purchases. So like you are buying a car from me uh, yeah. and, and I would offer you a loan at the same time when you're getting a car from me and shift would be the kind of entity helping facilitate that. So that was kind of our first idea. We started to experiment with that and, you know, discovered very quickly that sellers of cars weren't really interested in also selling a, a loan. And getting banks to work with us was going to be next to impossible. Um, and so, that, but what the banks were saying and what the sellers were saying is about actually, hey, can you take the car away from me and sell it for me? And banks are like, oh, we'd love to work with you if you are actually owning the transaction. So we kind of got into the owning the transaction business because we wanted to build a financing business, but we couldn't do it unless we owned the transaction. Um, when we got going, I mean, the, the, in the beginning, we actually had nothing. Um, the first probably 20 cars that we sold we got from finding people on Craigslist by just emailing them and saying, hey, you're selling this car. Would you like Shift to sell it for you instead? Uh, and then if people said yes, we'd send them a little brochure about what we did. Um, so like there was no website, there was nothing. Um, my whole kind of thesis in the beginning was that testing and learning was really critical. Um, and so you should build as little product as possible. Um, and then, uh, you know, to test your way into what the product should be and then build the product once it's clear that it should be X or it should be Y. Um, it, it, it was actually, you know, uh, I think very effective way to, to build um, and to learn what the market should be. A lot of that came from our learnings at Taxi Magic. That's a company that Toby and I and a few of us started earlier in 2007. At Taxi Magic, we had like a very clear view of what we wanted to build. And we went out and we spent, you know, a million and a half dollars building it. 
and then introduce it to the consumer. And the consumer is like, I want to use this product very differently from the way you've configured it. And we're like, okay, that's great. But we just wasted all this money building something that was not exactly what the consumer wanted. Um, and so um, that kind of, uh, you know, created let me, let me stop a about situation. that situation. Sorry, yeah. I want to know a little bit more about, about Taxi Magic. So look at this. <clears throat> this is your first TechCrunch article on Taxi Magic. Yeah. Jason Kincaid wrote it up. Yep. Wow. Right. This was this was basically everyone calls it Uber before Uber. What you did was you said people should be able to just hit a button on their iPhone. And this was what, a year after the iPhone launched? They should just hit a button on their phone and have a car show up, a taxi show up. Right? Yeah, so what we actually said is people should be able to hit a button on their BlackBerry and have the car show up. Ah, okay. <laughs> and then the iPhone came out. So we actually had already built the product and we already were doing what um, you're describing okay. uh, for BlackBerry and for Windows mobile phones, if people remember those, um, before before the iPhone. And then we put the app on, on, the, on the iPhone. Our initial concept was very focused on B2B travel, so like business travelers. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was, you know, you're a business traveler landing in New York, you want to get a cab, you don't really have an easy way to do that. And then we were partnering with a company called Concur um, to do expense management. So Concur is a massive expense management processing um, Mm -hmm. business, and they have a ton of business users. Car, you know, ground transportation was like huge 10% or so of, of expenses that they managed, but it was all cash and so huge opportunity for fraud. And so the thinking was if you could book a taxi and then pay for that taxi through a mobile phone, you could create a receipt which would go into Concur and uh, avoid the possibility of fraud. So that was kind of the initial concept. Book it or book it or not? It book, was it book, and, book it and pay. And pay. Book, and that's and, when yeah. it, it was called ride charge at the time. Exactly. Got uh, it. And then the iPhone came out and it took a lot of work to convince our shareholders and, and board that we should go to consumers. So we actually eventually were able to build a consumer product that was Taxi Magic on the iPhone. And that took off massively. And so the company kind of refocused itself to be more consumer focused versus business travel focused. Okay. Um, and, you know, it was a really uh, amazing experience. And Uber didn't like Uber and Lyft did not yet even exist at all um, at, at this point. Um, the kind of fundamental mistake or challenge at Taxi Magic was that we were relying on cab companies to do the fulfillment, right? Like they had to do the meet the consumer in a cab, et cetera. And cab companies had no incentive to pick serving a taxi magic customer over a customer that, that, that the driver would see on the road mm-hmm. that would flag him or a, um, a customer that called the cab company. In fact, that uh, a and- disincentive because if there's someone on the road, why not pull over and get that business oh, of now yeah, instead exactly. of driving a few extra miles what you're not getting paid for? Exactly. And so that was like the fundamental problem where like, you know, we were at one point like 10% of all taxis booked in, in San Francisco, mm-hmm. but we would get a ton of like blowback from consumers where like, hey, the car didn't show up. And we were being blamed for car not showing up, not the taxi cab company basically, right? right? Like versus like if, you know, you book United on Expedia, you don't blame Expedia, you blame United. Um, and so that was kind of the, the, the challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, we were like almost too early to uh, take the leap of like, hey, let's give drivers the phone. So we kind of build this whole system. We had integrations with like, you know, 40 or 50 cab companies across the country, spent so much money building integrations into their dispatch systems because no one had ever built an API into, into these systems. And so it was all like brand custom, kind of custom development. So then to like come out in, in 20, you know, oh nine or something and say, Hey, we're going to dump, dump all that and give drivers a phone directly was really like, you know, no wrecking people didn't want to do that, which we should have done. Uh, and that's sort of, I think like Uber 
you know, and actually more than Uber, Lyft, because Lyft actually was the real innovator in this space, giving drivers the phone and an app on the phone and then controlling the, the user experience a lot more than we were controlling was what changed the game, right? And, and that's why Uber and Lyft ultimately end up winning um, versus us and some of the other players who were taxi focused. You also started to say that in the beginning, you don't want to decide what the product is until consumers show you what the product is. I understand that at Shift, one of the things was um, you thought it was going to be financing. Consumers told you it was actually buying and selling the car that was a bigger issue. What was it at Taxi Magic when you were there? What did you think it was and what did consumers tell you the product? Yeah, so we thought that it was all about payment. And, and everything else was kind of secondary to payment. But it turned out actually that booking was a really big deal as well. And a lot of people wanted to book a taxi and not have to pay for it. So our entire system was built around book and then pay. Uh, and like, if you didn't pay through us after you booked through us, we would send you this like really nasty email saying like, why did you not pay through us? Like it was kind of like totally crazy. Um, and when I think about it today, I'm like, <laughs> something we should have been doing. Um, and so we had built all this infrastructure for processing payments. Because remember this is 2008, 2007, 2008, um, the idea of like Stripe or Braintree does not yet exist, right? So there's no like simple, hey, here's an yeah. API from a company. It's going to process your credit cards. Like we had to go and build our own integrations for credit card processing with processors, et cetera. And so all this effort had been put into like collecting credit cards, processing those credit cards, managing the, the, the payments when it turned out that like half our users couldn't care less about payments at all but really loved the booking experience. And so our minimum viable product should have been around booking, not around payment. And would have been, we would have been in market much faster and would have been a simpler product to have in market. So I think to me, the learning there is like, you want to get the most simple product possible out there, start having users engage on it, and then decide what you build next. So Toby, this is Toby's language, not mine, yeah. but it's 100% right. Like He's like, the first thing we should have done at... Um, Taxi Magic has built a website that said like book taxi here and people should have entered their address and then should have generated an email to one of us and we should have picked up the phone, <laughs> called the cab company and said, hey, there's a customer waiting for you at this address, go, right? That would have been a way to test like how do people feel about bookings? And so frankly, when it came to shift and we'd like had this, our kind of aha moment was the test drive delivered to the consumer. Eventually we did build this website where you could like book a test drive. So you'd have all our cars and there was a button to book a test drive. And so you click, click on the button and you'd be given a form to enter your address and then we geolocate you, et cetera. But it was no system in the background. There was like no scheduling system on the back end. It would literally send an email to about 20 people on the team uh, and there'd be a scramble on like, okay, let's get this test drive fulfilled uh, because that was a much easier product to build versus like building a scheduling system on the back end for how to manage test drives. And until, until we were like selling 100 plus cars a month, we were just literally using uh, an Excel spreadsheet uh, to uh, to manage the test drives that we had to do in a given day. That's what Shift um, was. The yeah. most basic, you know, let me take a moment. I want to come back and just ask you one last question about Taxi Magic, actually two mm -hmm. of them, um, about how you felt when you when you had to leave and what you had to do to stay in the country and then we'll continue with the story. But first, I've got to tell everyone this interview is sponsored by HostGator for hosting websites. You know, by the way, George, you know how big this ride-sharing business is? I interviewed a guy who has a whole site called The Rideshare Guy, making great money. You know that guy? Yeah. I, I don't know him, but I know he exists. Harry, so. yeah. He's just like his whole thing is that he just helps people who are in the rideshare business make more money. Bottom line, the reason I'm telling people this story is because if you have a passion, if you have something that you're curious about, start writing about it the way that he did and keep on building that business. And if you want to get started, 
whatever that passion is, even if it's just helping people who are in the rideshare business make more money, whatever that passion is, go launch it right now and do it on HostGator. They're inexpensive, they're dependable, and they'll grow with you. And I'm going to give you a really low price for getting started. If you go to HostGator.com slash Mixergy, they'll give you the lowest price that they have available right now, HostGator.com slash Mixergy. Did I wonder, did you, how did you feel when you had to leave the business and you saw Uber do well? I know people have asked you this. I know you've thought yeah. about this, but don't give me the rote answer. Feel in your heart. What reason? No, I mean, look, um, there was like two reasons to leave, right? Like I, I had, a, my green card was rejected and I had to go figure out how to stay in the country. And it was going to be very hard to do it through Taxi Magic because the rejection reason was, hey, you own too much equity in this company. So we don't regard it to be a real business. We think it's like a, you created the business for the purposes of getting oh, a wow. green card, which is like stupid. Um, and, uh, and then secondly, you know, like there was a kind of difference of opinion among the founding team on what to do. Like I wanted to kind of pursue more of the Uber Lyft route, which is like just give away the product for free um, get, give drivers the phone and go that direction and, and see what happens versus, you know, we had uh, folks on the team who were much more strongly in favor of an enterprise model where there was like some form of charging happening, uh, for the product before we kind of, you know, grew, uh, ultimately, like, I think giving away for free made a lot more sense from what we've seen, right? Like, uh, it, it didn't make sense to just, uh, kind of go after the enterprise consumer, but it, it is what it is. I look, I, um, I think it was obviously sad for me because I was building a business that I really liked, but I also saw, you know, an incredible opportunity in being able to move to the West Coast because I do think that we would have done better had we been on the West Coast um, that, you know, 10 years ago, yes, that made a difference or 11 years ago, that made a big difference. Um, and so I'm like, if I'm going to do another company, I'd rather be on the West Coast than not. And so it did present with me with a chance of like, hey, I'm going to make this really big change. It's kind of being forced on me by the need to get my green card, but like I'll actually uproot my life and, and move. It was really tough to move. Actually, that was probably the hardest thing to do because being from abroad, you know, moving to the U.S., then I went to, you know, prep school in Maine, college in Vermont, eventually moved to D.C. and spent like 10 years living in Washington. That had become kind of my home. And so like uprooting yourself again and moving across the country was like really, really tough uh, emotionally. And it took me probably like at least five or six years to get to the place where I felt like San Francisco was home. Um, and, uh, and so that was like the, the hardest thing that I, I, uh, kind of went through it during that time. But, you know, look, I think, uh, company, selling companies is fun. Ultimately, by the time I left Taxi Magic, I was not having fun. Now, of course, like when Uber and Lyft executed on a lot of the planning that we had done and we should have then pursued, that was really painful, right? Like, um, kind of watching them succeed in ways that we couldn't, uh, was, was really, really difficult because, I love the Uber and Lyft product. I'm still like, until the pandemic, I was an insanely heavy user. Yeah. Um, and the reason Taxi Magic was so exciting for me in the beginning is because I didn't actually drive back then. Like I don't, I didn't have a license. So I was like a massive personal need for the product. Uh, and I don't like driving even to this day. So um, it's, um, it, that, that was a, for a while hard, but then, you know, you take that kind of grief, let's say, and pour it into the, your next company, which uh, <laughs> has, been, has been an enjoyable process. You do do that, huh? So when you do that now, how are you channeling that? How is it? How is it becoming determination? How are you challenging channeling that feeling? Oh, I mean, that's way past that now. Like this is I'm talking in twenty in the beginning, 12, twenty yeah, in twenty twelve, okay, twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen. I mean, now like look, the reality is like um, I've had an incredible ride and an amazing you know I've done amazing things with 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 Shift and you know look 
let's put it this way. When I, um, if someone had interviewed me uh, in 2013 or 2014 and said like, what's your biggest accomplishment in life? I would say, oh, I started Taxi Magic, right? Like that was my biggest accomplishment. Yeah. I, that's not the answer I'm gonna give people today. <laughs> and so uh, I've done, you know, last half a decade has been pretty big for me in terms of like taking a lot of what I had been working on for years and then resulting in, in outcomes. And so um, kind of don't think about, hey, well, we did fail there at Tax Magic. So like, how do I feel about that now? I'm way past that. You went to Craigslist basic MVP. You told our producer you ran two different types of ads to see what people were interested in. What are the two different options that you- Yeah, so we would, um, in the beginning, we'd have an ad for a car that was just like a normal Craigslist ad, like, hey, I'm selling this car, that's it, and information about the car. And then we'd be like, here's an ad for a car, same car, but it would have like a loan product included in it. Uh, And, or it would have a warranty product included. So like, hey, I'm selling this car. And by the way, I have access to this financing product, uh, go read more about it here. Or I have access to this warranty product, go read about it here. Um, just to see kind of which ones would get more traction. And then we'd like also email um, sellers and say, hey, would you mind adding information about a warranty product to your car? Now, the warranty product and the loan product didn't actually exist. It was like a pure like, you know, dummy website that didn't have anything behind it. Uh, once we kind of got feedback from users, like, you know, one, one way or the other, we'd actually send them a gift card. So we'd send like a $50 gift card to anybody that engaged as a way to like compensate for their time for um, kind of for, for running the test. But said, sorry, we don't have this. Here's a gift card to yeah. show our appreciation or we ran out or something. What did you say we ran out or what was your- No, we'd say we actually like, we sorry, this has it. been a test. Like, yeah, it's, it, this is a kind of, uh, this is a, okay. a, a test. The, the idea being like, you know, you can do a lot of surveying to try to understand where consumers are, but that's not the same as understanding like how people react to an actual product. Mm-hmm. And so that, that to me um, was really, uh, really, really critical and, and really gave me, frankly, confidence that this business made sense, right? Like the testing that we did and the engagement with consumers, um, you know, I can't say okay, this particular data point was what got me over the top, but overall kind of what I saw in the market and how consumers were reacting uh, to various things we were testing made it seem like, yeah, it makes sense to go after this market. Uh, even though at that point, I mean, 2013, nobody was online. Like literally the idea of buying a car online was total impossibility, which by the way, makes no sense, right? Like the because everything else was sold online. So the idea you couldn't buy a car, totally not, not obvious. And, and the reason is that people want to see that. I don't need to see, I guess some people need to see their produce before they buy it. My parents do. I don't need to see it. With a car, they do. And the realization that you could bring the car to them and that wow moment happened when what? Somebody's somebody's father? Yeah, my co-founder, Joel Washington's dad was in, um, had a car that was really old and mm-hmm. had like a lot of issues. And so Joel really wanted him to um, get a new car. And like, literally this went on for months. Like every weekend, Joel would call his dad and be like, okay, dad, this weekend, are you going to go and buy a car? And he's like, oh, no, no, no. I have too much to do this weekend. I can't waste my entire day at a car dealership. And so eventually Joel got so fed up with this, like, okay, that he won't go. Like, he's like, dad, if I like could find a task rabbit to go to a dealership and drive the car over to your house, would you then buy the car? And, and he's like, oh, that'd be amazing, <laughs> right? And so that's kind of when, and then he came back to me, he's like, you know, this is what our wow moment should be. We should bring cars to consumers for a test drive because we were talking to, um, we had spent some time previously talking to one of the co-founders um, of Airbnb and you know, gave him kind of our picture, like this is what we're thinking for the business. And he's like, a lot of this sounds great, but you are, missing the wow moment, what, what's your wow moment going to be? And then like that kind of like, hey, he's right about that criticism. And then 
Joel having this experience with his dad made it feel like, okay, yeah, that this pursuing it this way makes a ton of sense. Bring it to people's homes. All right. And then you did something funky. Let me take a moment. Just talk about my second sponsor. It's Gusto for paying your people. When you guys use them, what do you remember about using them? Now you guys are a publicly traded company. You probably have gotten too big for all these services. Yeah. I mean, we had to, to move on away from Gusto a long time ago because they are actually more for SMBs versus larger businesses. So what do you um, remember? Uh, well, look, it's so easy, right? Like Gusto is, I remember using Gusto, which was then called Zampero. I'm like, wow, like this is the kind of experience you want to have, right? So they had done an amazing job. And um, I think my our first insurance when it was like two of us on health insurance was with that arranged through Gusto. And I think we paid, you know, payroll for Gusto for like um, the, for the first two years. And obviously, you know, Josh is an amazing entrepreneur and, uh, and has done something really, really awesome uh, with Gusto. And it's been what, like, 50, 60 years since ADP has been kind of the dominant player here. So uh, it's, it's really cool to see what they're doing. Yeah. As long as we're mentioning the comp competition. Yeah. Everyone remembers ADP. ADP, we all have such weird experiences with them. Yes. Can I tell you my worst ADP story? This, uh, actually, let me close out the ad. If you want to go, you've heard people talk about Gusto. If you want to go try them out, go to gusto.com slash Mixergy. They'll let you use it for three months for free. And you'll get to see why we're all raving about it. Here's the weirdest thing. It was my own company they would put everybody's paychecks right at the front door. And I thought, <laughs> this, is such a, this is such a weird thing. Anyone can go and see what everyone else is getting paid, which I guess it's okay, but you could see their social security numbers and all yep. that. And um, Yeah, so we, we actually have to use ADP because at our scale, you know, we're like almost 800 people. Uh, no one can really do um, payroll for us. Uh, and no one else can do payroll for us. Plus like we have, you know, hourly people and salary people, et cetera. Like there's a lot of complexity. Um, I think again, like Gusto is an interesting example of like building a business uh, in a very targeted way. Like yep. they like, okay, we're going to service SMBs that have like five people in it. And then we're going to go to like, okay, we have SMBs that are like 30 people in it or something. So uh, I remember talking to Josh about this one. So I'm like, you know, we kind of are thinking about moving away from you guys because uh, our team's saying that they need more features. And he's like, that's okay. We are meant for, for like business. This is, you know, back in 2015, I think like we're meant for business that have like 50 consumers or, or 50 employees or less. You guys are way too big. You should go with somebody else. And so that's a, that's a tough thing to do for an entrepreneur to be like that focused. Yeah. But I think it's a really big winning kind of strategy in how you build where you're like, I'm going to identify who my consumer is and I'm going to build for them and make their experience really good. And it's okay if I don't get the consumer who is not uh, kind of part of my bucket. Who was it at Airbnb who was acting kind of like a mentor from what I understand? Uh, yeah, Nate, their CTO um, was awesome. I mean, I think he gave us like three or four meetings over time. And like, you know, at that point, Airbnb was this like amazing company. And so they had, the fact that he would do that was yeah. incredible. But I think that's part of, I mean, now today, like I'm, I'm, I think a lot of entrepreneurs come to me and I try to kind of do the same thing, right? Because we, you benefit so much from the mentorship that you get from people who've been there and done that before. And that's one of the benefits, by the way, of living in San Francisco, that you could just go and see him. The other benefit is you say to somebody, sorry, I was just testing a business idea. Mm -hmm. I actually don't have the insurance that I told you. And they go, yep. hey, great story about another funky startup that's doing this yep. new thing. Right? Totally. Um, or when, I mean, when we finally did have a business and we'd come to them and look, we're going to take your car away, sign this contract. We're not going to pay you anything and money will come in 60 days when the car sells. People will be like, Okay, but they would do it because like uh, look up, look me up or look mini up and look, okay, these guys have like real backgrounds, real jobs that they've done before. It's like 
safe, let's go kind of do that. So San Francisco is like a great testing ground for that. Yeah. Of, of course, like the, the challenge with San Francisco is that the costs are out of control. Like uh, to start a business today, uh, you would have to raise twice the money that you had raised as a seed stage um, when, when we started Shift. Uh, given where salaries are and where cost of living in the Bay Area has gone to over the last yeah. seven years. You uh, you self-funded a lot of it yourself. You told our producer, we did okay from Taxi Magic sale. So you sold your Taxi Magic shares, your equity, you did. How much did you use to fund this business, to fund Shift? So, so we we lent um, Shift money. We didn't actually give okay. Shift money. So we lent Shift money for the, for, like, I think the first, like, three hundred fifty four hundred thousand dollars that we kind of spent to do the, a lot of the testing and kind of product conception uh, was with the money that Toby and I spent. Uh, and then we raised seed capital. And so we actually were really, really fortunate and raised nearly $4 million of seed capital. Now back then, $4 million was like this, it was like this massive seed round. And then like now, of course, like that company's announcing like $15 million, $20 million seed round. So it's a different world from where it was back then. But uh, we did raise a, a seed round and then eventually raise a series A. And then the, the way our kind of money that we personally spend was structured is that all the money we spent was meant to be paid back at Series A, which we did. So why did you do um, it that way? Um, I mean, look, That's like uh, I think if I um, if I had more cash, I would have been able to do to, to, to go more aggressively. But uh, throughout the time I've been at Shift, you know, um, until it became public, like my salary has always been substantially below market, <laughs> and so I've been deep, dipping into savings the entire time uh, in terms of uh, kind of uh, living. Um, and so I wanted to be able to do that. I think that's uh, having a low salary, I think is important for an early stage entrepreneur, um, partly because it allows you to have a really strong argument for keeping salaries low across the business <laughs> in general, frankly, and yeah, you yeah. need to do that because otherwise you're spending too much money, right? So, um, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I, I think if I was doing this today, I could do it differently because I'm in a different financial situation, but you know, back then, um, that's the best I could do. You were talking about raising money and it sounded so easy, but you had some difficulty. In fact, apparently you were raising money around the 2016 election. Clinton lost, Trump won. How did that impact your ability to raise money? Yeah, I mean, look, I, we actually had, you know, fairly good and easy rounds in the beginning in 2014 okay. and 2015. And then we had this, you know, we had, we had some hiccups in the business just to be super direct about it. So there wasn't just a, the market dynamic, but uh, the business performance had some issues as well. And then we actually had a, a term sheet that we were aiming to uh, kind of close in November. Um, and uh, and then Trump got elected, which obviously like no one thought that was going to happen. Yep. Um, and the, the investor pulled uh, the term sheet because of the the election. Um, and a bunch of other people we had been kind of aiming to bring into the term sheet also pulled out. Uh, some of this was like foreign capital and they were concerned about, you know, some of the rhetoric and what Trump was planning on doing because no one really it, knew what it he was going to like, do. It sounds like, oh, it was the not knowing. And also because you said it was foreign capital, I started to imagine that it was probably someone from a Muslim-based country who was wondering, yeah, got it. You're Correct. nodding. Got it. Yeah. And so they weren't sure where this was going to go. And if they're investing their money, what Got it. What's going to happen yep, to it? Exactly. Okay. So they pulled and, out. Did you get spooked out? Well, I mean, we, we only had like six months of capital left uh -huh. and this is like November. So we are like, okay, we had to really scramble and figure out what to do. It was really terrible. And I actually, I mean, the worst part of it for me, like the 24 hours was I was flying to Lisbon uh, for Web Summit because uh, I had to speak at Web Summit that Tuesday. So the I was on this British Airways flight and I think the flight was leaving at like 8 or 9 p.m. Pacific. And so... We went to my husband came to the airport with me and and uh, um, 
uh, when my boyfriend at that point when we had married and he's like and yeah, he's you know, checking like trump's gonna win and i'm like there's no way trump can't win and and then of course like i'm you know getting on the plane and like the last message i'm getting from him is like trump won um and there's no internet on on british air so like um i can't get any news for like the next you know 12 or 13 hours whatever it is so i'm like couldn't sleep on uh, the entire ride on the plane like totally horrified like what is it gonna mean the stock yeah. market is gonna collapse etc of course like things developed in a very different way, right? Like it was, um, yes, scary for certain people, et cetera, but like the market actually went massively went up, et cetera. So it was a very weird and unusual time. And, you know, who would have thought things would develop the way it would? I mean, like, look, I, if we got to this point, like given what happened, you know, uh, in in early January here in, uh, on, on Capital Hill, that's like beyond January depressing. 2020, yeah. Yeah, it, it's like, I don't know, to me, this has been some of the, most difficult and sad uh, days I've had in my life, actually. Well, you personally, why? Um, because, well, for two reasons. One is like, I be believe that America is the most amazing experiment uh, in the history of mankind. Uh, I believe our constitution is the greatest uh, thing that mankind has ever produced. And so to watch the person who swore to defend the constitution, uh, like, directly and personally violated in this like massively public way is despicable and disgusting and is really really sad and then secondly because i i was born in a country where it does not have that right like where freedom is actually not fully there and georgia's made a lot of strides and is in a much better place versus where it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago but still developing as a democracy and in georgia like in most other countries like this people look up to the U.S. Constitution and our transitions of government, et cetera, is like, okay, that's what we aspire to do. And uh, so then when we can't actually get our, our things together to do it right because of one man, like the message that it sends to, you know, millions and millions and hundreds of millions of people around the world, like that's really, really sad, right? Because it's basically telling them like, oh, if they can't do it, then it can't be done anywhere else. So there's not a better way to embolden you know, tyrants in China or Russia and elsewhere than what happened, uh, you know, with this. I mean, it was like a civil rebellion, basically. Like we had people who rebelled against the constitution and tried to stop a lawful transition of government. That hasn't happened in America since 18, um, 1860, right? Like when South Carolina seceded mm. from the union on, on uh, December 20th, I think 1860, it hasn't happened since. It's kind of insane what we lived through. I want to come back and ask you about George. Actually, can I take this detour with you for a moment? Tell me yeah. if it's uncomfortable. What was it like being gay growing up in Georgia? Well, I, I, at that point, I didn't really know that I was gay, frankly. Like, I don't think I kind of didn't. That. No, I mean, I left Georgia when I was 14. Okay. I think uh, I didn't fully have a realization of what it meant to even be gay or not uh, at that okay. point. I mean, this is like, uh, you know, very early days. Uh, but, you know, I did... Um, and I was much more sure that I was gay when I uh, went back to Georgia in 2003, 2004 to run a political campaign. Um, and, you know, still not fully like I was not out to everybody. I was only out to my gay friends, not to anybody else. And uh, still had to kind of come to terms with how I'm going to live as a gay man. Uh, and I think that fact actually was one of the big reasons I decided to stop working on, on Georgia and in Georgian politics, because it became very clear to me that, unfortunately, you could not be gay and open about it and be successful in, in politics. Legally, legally, you could. Legally, oh, there are protections for LGBTQ yeah. in, in Georgia. But mm. you're saying socially it's not working. So, well, it's 
look, this is 2004, 2005. Now we're in 2021. Right, right. Things are changing. Right. So like, let's- Even in the US, being, true. And everywhere. I mean, like gay the, marriage. the speed by which gay rights have yes. become the norm is, is incredible. And I'm, I'm not saying Georgia is anywhere near the US, but like it's more moving in that direction. But in 20, in 2004, like totally socially not viable. I mean, look, the Georgian Orthodox Church, which is very conservative and that this is going to be a very controversial thing to say, but which has done amazing things for the country over, you know, 2000 years. And Georgia probably wouldn't exist without uh, the kind of very strong religious uh, fervor in the population and the church's kind of moral fiber um, is extremely anti, you know, homosexuality, right? Like mm -hmm. as any, as any kind of Christian conservative entities are. Um, and so that I think has a massive impact. And then also um, just the, the cultural biases of people do as well. Now, the funny thing is that a ton of Georgian politicians actually are gay. They're just closeted and gay. So and you know it, you know, yeah, it. I, know and, and, and I know this and everyone else knows it's like, it's like, it's a very known phenomenon, but no one public and everyone's like married and gay at the same time. Like I would never lead my life that way. I yeah, kind of, I, I, I was fortunate enough to, you know, grow up as an adult here. And that was not something I would do. So for me, it was very clear that like, I couldn't do that. And, uh, and I needed to kind of give up like any dream of like, Hey, I'm going to do something with or continue helping Georgia in, in kind of its democratic transition, right? Cause like for me, that was a really important now look, it, it created other opportunities and I probably wouldn't have done a transition into business as quickly as I did had, uh, you know, that not been an issue. Um, and frankly, like I was terrified about telling my dad that I was gay. Um, and we waited or I waited for a very, very long time. Um, I'll be honest, like he has been amazing about the whole thing. Um, and, you know, he, he, not just that, hey, my son is gay, which in Georgia is like super not okay in still in many ways, but like my son is be married and C has two children. Like it's, it's a lot to swallow for, <laughs> you know, for, from given from the society that he live, lives in and, and comes from. And I think he's been really, really amazing uh, about that. And, 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 and I, I think it's really powerful. Second point, like, um, you know, before my husband and I got married, we actually went to Georgia in 2000, um, uh, and 18, uh, for a week, mainly to like, you know, meet my dad for him to meet my dad, etc. Um, and so I had a chance to spend a lot of time with younger people in, in Georgia, uh, then, because at this point, like everyone wants to talk to me, but Hey, you are an entrepreneur. Like, how do I do the same thing, et cetera. Um, the, and I, I'm at this point, I'm very open, right? Cause like, well, my husband's around. So like, what am I going to, I'm not going to hide that. And so people were from the young population, like no one cares. Uh, and then lastly, you know, when my babies were born, I was again in Georgia one, there for a conference. They asked me to speak at this, um, startup grind conference. Uh, they did a press story about me and like, um, the reporters were fairly direct about babies because they didn't say George is gay and his gay husband and George have children. But like the reality is my husband's Asian. So one of our children is half Asian and she looks half Asian. And then B, they talked about the fact that we went through surrogacy and had an egg donor. So the fact they that talked you about it at the stage, uh, no, on television, like on television. This, okay. Sorry. So the uh, fact that. Yeah. So the, this was in this, this TV story that they did about me. So the fact that like a reporter felt comfortable ah, doing yeah. that and like there was no crazy reaction to it, et cetera. When you take all that and compare it to, you know, 2004 and how I think people would have reacted to that in 2004, it's a totally different story. So as much as like Georgia still has a long way to go for people to feel comfortable being gay in Georgia, um, I think the transition is very much on its way 
there. Um, was, it, was it easy for you, considering your your background, considering the way the world was all over? Then was it easy for you to accept that you were gay, or did you? Even no, no, it definitely wasn't, wasn't easy, and it, and I think it took me a very long time uh, to come to to terms with it. You know, probably at least like uh, probably active thinking about it at least ten years. Actively mm -hmm. thinking, how do am I? It, was it am I also? It's not am I, but like, how am I going to deal with it, right? Like, oh. how is this all going to work? So you clearly know, and how am I going to, am I going to be the person who hides? Am I going to be the person who's yeah. open? Am I going to be the person who got it? Yeah. And I think like, I mean, I so I told Toby that I was gay in uh, February of 2006 um, or five or six, mm -hmm. I forget now. Like that was the first time I ever told anybody who was uh, not a gay friend of mine, right? Like, you know how like <laughs> kind of you have like this, the kind of cohort of gay friends uh, that I was gay and I was like real terrified. Now he obviously accepted it way more easily than I thought he would. And actually he was mad at me for not telling him earlier because um, we, we've been friends since you know 1996 when we first met each other the first day yeah. of college. So uh, for a really long time. Um, but like, you know, that entire, basically my entire college period and then the, Kind of five years um, after college, at least, was like an active kind of process of thinking about how do you deal with that. Fact. And you didn't and, want to tell him not because you thought he would dislike you for it, right? Or, or uh, well, no, I mean, look, I have no idea how. Like, it's such a long time ago. But like, for any number of reasons, you feel very uncomfortable. Just reflectively and also, protective, it seems. Yeah, like. and there's also like my my family issues, and who knows where I'm going to be living, and like right. what my future holds. Like, there's a ton of com complexity to deal with. I think it's. You know, today it's a totally different world. And I think, you know, people can be like, oh, well, we don't have all the rights that we want, right, in America. But like the reality is um, the transition on gay rights and acceptance of gay people in America in the last 20, 25 years is completely incredible. I mean, I remember when I was in prep school, um, Helen on the, on her, the, the, comedy show, show right like, yeah. no not the current like the comedy show that she was in yep kissed a, a, another woman and it was like this brouhaha that went on for like weeks like got to cancel the show and like <laughs> whichever network aired it had to pay blah 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 like this is like 1994 1995 right to go from there to like where we are today um it's a pretty incredible thing and uh that speaks wonders about how amazing america is let me come back to shift with this question that I've been wondering. I read this article about you guys on Seeking Alpha. It actually came out two, a couple of days ago, January 5th. It said that one of your biggest challenges is that you're third place in an online market of used cars that depends a lot on data from sales. And if you don't have as many sales as your competition, you don't have enough data about what you should be paying for used cars as your competition, which then becomes this downward spiral. Yeah, no, I don't actually buy that. Um, meaning data is important. I don't buy that argument. So there's a couple of things. One is um, there's a ton of public data that's available um, uh, that's already out there about where cars are priced at, yep. um, which is, you know, you can buy and everyone buys their data. Um, no, and so, so there's like, and I guess, sorry, let me step back. You even need so much data. No one has that much data, not even CarMax that's selling, you know, close to a million cars a year, or you need like, data that and and so to reach that level you have to buy publicly available data because you're talking like tens of millions of transactions or you need data that's very unique to you and 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 so we need and you really you need both um you know we are in because we're market by market based we're actually very large players in the mark in our mature more mature markets and we probably sell more cars here than anybody else does in san francisco for example and so 
since the car market is actually local, having a ton of national data is a good guide point, but it will never be determinative to what we pay for a car. In the Bay Area, for example, there are certain makes and models, pretty well known, so it's not a secret information. Prius, Subaru sell way better as a percentage of sales overall, not for shift, but for anybody, um, than in the rest of the country. Totally understandable for why, right? Like this is kind of the population you're dealing with here. I, I actually don't um, understand why, but I, I agree with oh, you. Oh, because Subaru uh, and, and well, because people are very environmentally conscious, um, are outdoorsy. <laughs> Prius is a very affordable environmentally conscious car. Um, people have to drive for a long time, and it's very inexpensive from the driving point of view. And Subaru is regarded as like the best outdoorsy car, which holds value extremely well, mm, okay. right? So like, it's, it's very, the in the Bay Area, these are very high percentage of sales. No national data would kind of tell you that. The fact that when we buy a Prius in San Francisco, we're willing to pay more for it versus when we buy a Prius somewhere else. Because mm -hmm. we're not going to ship a Prius from, uh, you know, I don't know, Dallas to San Francisco necessarily because that shipping cost is way too high and doesn't make any sense. Um, but you're willing to pay $200, $300 more for that car, that car in the Bay Area because you're going to be able to sell that car faster and you're going to command a higher price for it versus somewhere else. So the, what really matters is local data. And we have plenty of that. And we actually have more of that than our peers, because they are not local at all. They're they on a more national kind of push. Um, and then, so I am, the, the data issue is like not an issue at all. This market is massive. Um, I don't view Carvana and Room as competition. They're awesome analog companies that do things uh, somewhat differently and somewhat similar to us. On the operational side, you know, Carvana and Room are, sorry, Carvana and Shift are more similar to each other. We are full stack and they're full stack in terms of how we operate. Um, on the consumer experience side, Vroom and Carvana are more similar to each other. They only offer car bought online and then sent to you for delivery on a truck. We offer that product as well, but we also have the test drive, which they don't offer. So on the consumer side, there's actually differences. On the operational side, Carvana and Vroom are similar. Uh, sorry, Carvana and Shift are similar. Vroom is quite different. But there's plenty of room for all three of us to, to succeed, and we'll succeed in, each, in, in our own ways, right? Like Shift's team is a tech heavy team and we've been building operational and automotive capabilities around us. Vroom's team is super strong in, in marketing and, and their leader who's awesome is a, is a marketer at heart. Um, Carvana comes out of the automotive space. These are different kind of organizations and all three of them can succeed really, really well. And the model right now is essentially what we described, what you figured out in the early days when it was you buying these cars parking them in front of your place here in San Francisco, you'd have 10 cars from what I understand out there, and then selling it to people who would have this test drive experience of somebody concierge coming and dropping it over. That's still the model. And then after a sale, it's still financed. That's exactly right. Okay. All right. For anyone who wants to follow, you know what? They all know to go to shift.com. How much did you guys pay for shift.com? Uh, I don't think I can say that, but we did have to buy it kind of as a, as a separate purchase. We were lucky that there was an agency that owned it. It was like a quasi-tech marketing agency, and then they were bought by somebody else, and so it was no longer in use, so we kind of lucked out. Great freaking domain. So shift.com, but if they want to follow up with you, yourself, George Arison, where are you? What, are you a social person? You don't blog? Oh, um, I don't blog very much. I do post on LinkedIn a lot. And so I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. I have a Twitter account, but I almost never post. Um, and I don't have many followers or follow many people just because I don't have time for Twitter. Okay. Um, LinkedIn is more kind of my cup of tea. I mean, I frankly say like, I don't know how I do my job without LinkedIn because I think I go into LinkedIn like 20 times a day. To do what? Um, to, to read? To post? To, 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 no, to look people up and to kind of, you know, understand people. Like, look, 
half my job is recruiting, right? Like, and so understanding mm. people's relationships are really critical. We all have superpowers. I mean, we all entrepreneurs have some, some superpower. I think people say about me that one of mine is recruiting. And so it's not surprising from that standpoint that LinkedIn's a really big part of my, my uh. everyday job. All right. So find him on LinkedIn, George Arison of Shift. And I want to thank the two sponsors who made this interview happen. The first, if you are hosting a website or thinking about starting one, go go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. And the second, y'all heard about how great Gusto is. Go to gusto.com slash Mixergy. George, thanks for spending the extra time with me today. Bye, everyone.